You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Frank Cunali's career in baseball dates back to his days working for a Washington, D.C. law firm, where he represented Major League Baseball, assisting with collective bargaining and representing several clubs in salary arbitration matters. He would later join the commissioner's office, spending a decade as senior vice president and general counsel of labor. He joined the Pirates as team president in 2007, leaving his mark on both the baseball and business sides of the franchise. I sat down with Cunali to discuss his communication with the Pirates fan base, the importance of accountability, and what it felt like to watch Pittsburgh get back to the postseason in 2012 following a lengthy absence. Enjoy this conversation with Pirates president, Frank Coonley. We're here with Pirates president, Frank Coonley. Frank, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. So you were born and raised in Philadelphia. Natural to assume you were a Phillies fan growing up? I was. I was a very passionate Phillies fan, which uh, was, was, we went through some difficult times when I was young. I was a little bit too young to remember the 64 team that uh, collapsed, but uh, grew up as a very passionate fan of baseball, but particularly the Phillies, handed down by my father, who was a uh, very big baseball fan as well. So as a kid, was the dream to be a Broad Street bully or to play with the Phils? The dream was to be a Major League Baseball player. <laughs> Every day I came home from school and couldn't wait for my father to come home from work so we could go out back and... I could pitch to him, or he could pitch to me, and we could hit. I uh, loved baseball growing up, and for many years, the only thought I had was being a Major League Baseball player. Everybody who's working in baseball played it at some level. Where did you top out? Uh, I played a bit in high school, but uh, probably stopped playing in 10th grade to concentrate on hockey. You graduate from Penn State, you get your law degree, and you go to work for a law firm in Washington, D.C. for 12 years. Associate, eventually a partner. And one of the, you specialized in labor law, right? Correct. And one of the accounts that you worked on was Major League Baseball. Um, at what point during that time did working for the league become something that either interested you or that seemed like something that was realistic? I would say fairly shortly. And I was very fortunate. I, unlike many young people that come and talk to me and ask me, how do you do it? How do you get into the game? I love baseball. I want to get into the game. Uh, I didn't have a tract that I was trying to get into sports. As much as I loved sports in general and baseball in particular, uh, that wasn't where I was focused. Uh, I joined the law firm of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius because they were a terrific labor law firm. And uh, at the time, they didn't represent Major League Baseball. We began to represent Major League Baseball about a year after that, and I was very fortunate to be one of the uh, young attorneys on the account, asked to work on the account along with uh, Commissioner Rob Manford, was uh, also <clears throat> part of our group. We should note he was not the commissioner at that point. <laughs> he was not. He was a uh, slightly more senior associate at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius than, than I at the time, and uh, Rob and I worked together on many baseball matters for many years. So. Um, so fairly quickly upon my career, I started to work a large proportion of my time on baseball. Fortunately, I worked for some other really uh, interesting clients as well in very diverse industries. 
because the <clears throat> entertainment or professional sports industry in labor law is different than most of the other industries. Um, unique, special, uh, interesting, challenging, complex, all of those things. Uh, but it was also interesting to work on more what we'll call traditional labor <clears throat> relationships in the trucking industry and in the coal industry and in the airline industry. So I had great experience, but pretty quickly upon uh, our firm becoming the outside counsel for Major League Baseball, uh, I began to spend most of my time on the baseball work. So while I never was really thinking, boy, I really should think about moving in-house into the commissioner's office, uh, I was spending so much of my time doing that work that it really, when the opportunity um, came about, it was a fairly natural move for me. How did that opportunity come about? Well, when Bud Seeley became commissioner, Paul Beeston became president of Major League Baseball, uh, Paul, made, Paul and Bud made the decision that uh, they wanted to ramp up the in-house labor law capacity at the commissioner's office and asked both Rob and I to join the commissioner's office. And uh, that was a unique opportunity to go from spending a good portion of my time working on the baseball account to obviously working entirely for baseball and also having an opportunity along with Rob <clears throat> as in-house counsel to not only address issues when problems arose, which is typically what an outside counsel does, a problem arises, they go to outside lawyers, here handle, litigate, arbitrate uh, the issue. This way, going inside, you actually had an opportunity to try to shape policy and shape the relationship with the Major League Baseball Players Association. So that was an intriguing um, part of going inside with Major League Baseball. So you work with Rob at the law firm, you guys move over to MLB together. Back then, did you envision that he would someday emerged to be the next commissioner after Bud Seeley? Rob always was a um, extraordinarily intelligent. Um, you could tell that from the first time that you meet him and interact with him. I had the pleasure of working on some cases with him and um, high, high intellect. And also a great capacity to build relationships and on non-baseball matters at Morgan Lewis, he was responsible for a few very difficult labor relationships that um, we represented the management of the companies that had really difficult relationships with their unions, and Rob was able to go in there and build consensus. So that was evident very early on. Whether I perceived him as the commissioner in 10, 15 years, probably didn't think about it, but always understood him to be a uniquely uh, skilled and intelligent labor negotiator and someone who could uh, build consensus extraordinarily well. You leave your firm, you spend a decade at the commissioner's office, senior vice president, general counsel of labor. Your duties involve labor negotiations, arbitration hearings, draft bonuses. You had a pretty wide range of, of things you dealt with at the commissioner's office. What have you learned most working there? I, everybody that I've spoken to, uh, who has worked at the commissioner's office in some form or fashion has said it's basically like getting your graduate degree in baseball. That's true. And one of the things I was most proud of is that in our department, the labor relations department, um, we really did as reflection of Paul and, and Bud wanting to enhance that group, we brought in additional 
<clears throat> men and women to that group, both lawyers and non-lawyers, to assist the clubs in their labor relations, contract negotiations, and uh, building of their rosters. And as we brought people in, we trained them, and individuals were able to then move to clubs and become assistant general managers and general managers, and it really became one of the pipelines for uh, people who were interested in becoming a general manager to uh, fulfill that dream. And so that was, you come into the commissioner's office and the clubs are relying on you for your advice and counsel. How does this rule apply to this situation? Can we make this roster move at this time? And you become a, truly an expert on the major league rules, the major league constitution, the basic agreement, and you uh, acquire very valuable skills that can move on. Now that causes some disruption as we need to hire people on a, on a regular basis as they move on. But it became a very good and it continues to be an outstanding pipeline for young people who are interested in getting into the general manager um, line of work. Uh, in terms of what we learned, I think what we were able to accomplish that I'm most proud of there is really reverse the poor labor relations that we had with the Players Association. Uh, and we were part of it as outside lawyers, so taking full accountability for the, the roles that we played in our inability to get to yes on a collective bargaining agreement without a strike or a lockout. So prior to 2002, Major League Baseball and the Players Association had gone to the bargaining table for eight consecutive times, and eight consecutive times it resulted in a strike or a lockout. Some of them only a matter of days, others months, uh, and obviously in 1994 a strike that uh, ended the season and there was no World Series played for the first time since 1903. Um, we were able to reverse that by building relationships with the leaders of the Players Association, including the player uh, members of their bargaining committee in, and building some trust between the two parties that when we say something, we can get it done. When you say something, we can trust that you will get it done and understanding, trying to find an understanding of the interests that the Players Association had and trying to find agreements that could meet both interests of the parties. Now, if I recall, in 2002, came pretty close. Uh, I remember sitting in a hotel lobby in Toronto, you know, when it was hours away from this deadline that the players were going to strike and, you know, waiting to see any player you could find to try to find out what was going on. How, how close did that get to it, becoming another workshop? Well, it, it went to the, you know, 11th hour, 12th hour, whatever the right uh, saying is. I remember, you know, it was staying up, I don't know how many days in a row we stayed up all night, but stayed up all night for a couple of days in a row and all of the teams had buses that were ready to go to take the players to wherever they were heading. Forget what day of the week it was, it seems to me it was a, <clears throat> a uh, day that normally the series shift, shifted, so it might have been a Thursday. I know there were buses all over and we worked through the night and the uh, Don Fear, Mike Weiner, the player negotiating committee that time, uh, which I'm pretty certain had uh, Tommy Glavin and B.J. Surhoff. Interestingly, we uh, just acquired Colin Moran, who is the nephew of B.J. Surhoff. So I was talking to Colin about some of the stories. B.J. was one of the very vocal um, 
and intelligent players on the Players Association Negotiating Committee during those negotiations. Uh, critical to the success of that negotiation is my recollection. So sharing some of those stories, but it went right down to the wire and there were tough issues that we needed to compromise on and neither side, both sides wanted to finally reach agreement without a strike or a lockout, even for a day. Uh, and there was a lot of work that had been done up to that point. And uh, finally, I think there was leadership on both sides that pushed an agreement across the table and set a new dynamic in, in professional sports that baseball now has a very long period of labor peace um, that, that we can be proud of. What went into your decision to leave the commissioner's office for a club? Was that something you'd always considered? Did you think at some point in your career you would make that move? Really hadn't been concentrating on it um, because I was, I really enjoyed the work of the commissioner's office. It was fulfilling. It was gratifying. Um, I thought it was important work that uh, needed to be done and that I was thrilled to have the opportunity to do. I'd say in the last couple of years that I was there, I was approached a few times by some teams for some opportunities with the teams, which got me thinking about it. I, again, much like I wasn't really focused on trying to get into professional sports, but I was very fortunate to have the opportunity. Uh, while I was at the commissioner's office, I wasn't focused on my next career move or my next job, but some opportunities came my way None of the original ones seemed to be the right fit for me, but it, got, it did get me thinking that maybe I had something to add at the individual club level, much different than at the commissioner's office. At the commissioner's office, uh, part of my job was providing advice and counsel to clubs on roster building, uh, how you allocate a infinite or a not a, a finite series of uh, revenue sources to build a winning team. And one thing about advice and counsel is sometimes people listen, sometimes people don't. And the, the thought of being able to go to an organization and help be part of a team to implement some of those ideas yourself, and hopefully you'll listen to yourself, um, started to become intriguing. And when uh, Bob Nutting came to me, with the uh, opportunity to talk to him about a potential opportunity to join the Pirates. That one, this opportunity fit. This one felt right. Um, while it's the other side of the state, I was born and raised in, in Pennsylvania. I did make the mistake the first time I, I uh, went to a speaking engagement after being hired and tried to make sure that the fans of the Pirates knew that I wasn't just some sharp lawyer from New York and I explained that I was born and raised in Philadelphia, I got booed, and then explained <laughs> that I went to Penn State, I had these great Pennsylvania uh, roots, and I got booed again. <laughs> so the next time I went and spoke to a group, I said, I'm some sharp lawyer from New York, nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> I figured maybe you should have worked a penguin's hat or something. Yeah, no, nobody that. cared, a sharp lawyer from New York, okay, can you help us, <laughs> can you help us turn the pirates around? So the, the opportunity felt like it, it fit, it was the right opportunity with the right organization, the right leadership. One of your first duties was to hire a new general manager to replace Dave Littlefield. What was that process like for you, and how did you land on Neil Huntington? Well, we moved. We wanted to move quickly. Uh, took the position in the middle of September of 2017, and uh, Dave had been. I mean, 2017. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Time does fly. Uh, <laughs> well, a, lot, a lot's happened in six months, right? Um, 2007, and uh, Dave had been relieved of his duties, and uh, we had we had some interim leadership, but we wanted to move quickly. But obviously, we needed to to make the right decision. Uh, so we were looking for somebody who would embrace the challenge that was in front of us, and the challenge was real. Uh, Pittsburgh was uh, not in a good place in terms of the talent on the major league club and the talent in the minor league system and we had some challenges from a revenue perspective as well and so we wanted somebody who could really marry the analytics that we're developing in the game of baseball along with the traditional scouting and models and Neil was really the perfect match for that uh, he was someone who was very much in tune and at the uh, leading edge of the analytics world, but also somebody who had spent a lot of time himself uh, scouting major league players and amateur players and and really valued what scouts and what a um, well-structured scouting operation brings to the table in terms of evaluating and analyzing players. You mentioned interacting with fans. You've been known to walk around the ballpark, talk to fans. The end of the 2009 season, you wrote a letter to the fans apologizing for a season you said was unacceptable, and you laid out the team's long-term plan. How important is it for you to communicate with the fan base in that manner? I think it's critical because um, you know, we, we can only control the message to some to a certain extent, and um, oftentimes we don't do a very good job, and I don't do a very good job of making sure that we're speaking directly to our fan base and therefore other messages are getting through. So, so I take it upon myself and I think that it's um, a, a more credible conversation when I'm speaking directly to the fans. So we do fan forum every year and we, we hear it from our fans, which is they're right, and that's why they're fans, because they want to let us know what they think. But we do a question and answer session every winter at Pirates Fest, and we get to hear from our fans, good and bad. Um, we get their ideas, which is important. I also run um, Q&A sessions during the season for season ticket holders and for some other fans. I do it during the off-season. I'll make personal calls to fans who have issues. So I, I think it they are what is um, makes the Pirates go. Our fans, if fans weren't passionate about the Pirates and weren't upset when they should be upset and weren't upset when maybe they shouldn't, but they are anyway, um, they wouldn't be fans. And if they're not fans, they're not supporting the Pittsburgh Pirates and we're not going to be able to do the things that we need to do. Our fans are critical for us. Um, when we won in 2013, 14, and 15, we did it because of our fans. Um, in a market like Pittsburgh, we need to have the type of support that we've had over the years from our fans because we're, we're fighting against some teams with larger resources in, in each area of the revenue stream. And you know, we can only do so much without tremendous support from our fans and when we've gotten it it's been um, thrilling I mean, through the 2013 14 and 15 period 
PNC Park was as alive as any ballpark in Major League Baseball, and the 2013 Wild Card game against the Reds was the greatest crowd. I mean, the game itself was, from a Pirates fan's perspective, tremendous, but the crowd was the greatest crowd I've ever witnessed in professional or amateur sports. Uh, and that's the type of passion that we're fortunate to have. That 2013 team getting to that wild card game, first postseason appearance in two decades for the Pirates. How satisfying was it for you to see Pittsburgh as a baseball town again? It seemed like, I mean, the Penguins have had a lot of success there, obviously. But to see the Pirates back in the playoffs and to see that whole city going crazy for your team. Well, it truly showed you the passion that the city has for its baseball team. And it was guttural. I'm, I'm telling you, from hours before we even opened the gates, Federal Street was packed. The Clemente Bridge was packed with fans who had come down. Many of them didn't even have a ticket to the game uh, who came down and wanted to be part of this scene. It was a reflection of their unbelievable passion for the team. So... I never had a doubt that Pittsburgh remains a great baseball city, uh, but I know some others did, and the 2013 run, <clears throat> and really it started before that in 2011, our fans started to believe that something was happening, something had changed, and we were moving in the right direction, and they really started to follow the team. We didn't finish the job at the end of the year, 2012, again, we got a little further push, uh, but didn't finish the job, but the fans were starting to believe, and then it came together in 2013. You know, regrettably, we never pushed it all the way through to the end to win a World Series championship, and that's what each and every day that we're focused on, because as uh, fun as it was in 13, 14, 15 with 98 wins, um, at the end of the day, we're here to win championships, and we won't be satisfied until we do in a Q&A in 2014 with my dear old friend Tom Singer, you said, quote, we are not in the battle to win the highest payroll, but to win a World Series championships. Those are two different things, end quote. Have the past 115 years shown you how realistic that is in the game now, that you don't have to have, you know, I mean, we even hear Hal Steinbrenner say he doesn't think you need to have a $200 million payroll to win a World Series. So has it become where, you know, spending the most money doesn't equal success necessarily, and so you can really try to achieve that goal? Well, there's no question that our game has to be a game that's built on, as Commissioner Seeley used to say, every single opportunity he had, every team and the fans in every market need to have the hope and faith that their team can win a championship. Things have to go right, right? There's, there's 30 of us and we all have the same goal and only one team can be holding that World Series championship trophy at the end of the year. But it really is critical for the game that each club and each club's fan base has the hope and faith that their team can win. And it will not, it is not driven simply by money. In fact, the team with the highest payroll in baseball hasn't won the World Series since the Yankees in 2009. Uh, so it's, it's not all about money. Uh, does a more narrow compression of the payroll ranges in baseball? Does it make it more likely that each team's fan base will have hope and faith that their team can win a championship? Yes, no question about that. And I think that, I don't think I know that. Um, 
throughout negotiations in the collective bargaining agreement, there have been efforts to improve the competitive balance in the game. Uh, but there's no question I came in to Pittsburgh and after figuring out I don't need to talk about my Philadelphia roots or my Penn State <laughs> roots, uh, I figured I heard very clearly from our fan base a skepticism as to the Pirates ever being able to win under the economic system of Major League Baseball. Fans pointed out to me, hockey has a salary cap. That's why the Penguins can win in Pittsburgh. Football has a salary cap. That's why the Steelers can win in Pittsburgh. Baseball doesn't have a salary cap. You can't win. I rejected that uh, argument because I understood, one, we didn't have a salary cap, and we had other mechanisms in the collective bargaining agreement to push the competitive balance uh, of our game. And if we don't have the belief that we can win without a salary cap, who else is going to have it for us? So we clearly believe that we can win despite that. And in fact, we went out and demonstrated that in 13, 14, and 15, when we had one of the best records in all of baseball and were one of only three teams. Uh, unfortunately, one of the others was the Cardinals in our division and the other one was the Dodgers, but during that three-year period, <clears throat> we were one of only three teams to make the playoffs in each of those years, and you don't do that by luck or happenstance for three years in a row. So we demonstrated that uh, a well-run team making tough decisions, tough player personnel decisions, uh, we made the decision that we couldn't match the offer that Toronto made to Russ Martin in 2014 when he became a free agent. That was a tough decision that we had to make um, and you know, our fans understandably didn't like it because Russ was a leader of our team, critical to our success in 13 and 14 uh, and we had to let him go. That was a tough decision but Neil picked up Cervelli from the Yankees, uh, Francisco stepped right into that role and we won 98 games in 2015 and those are the tough, type of tough decisions that you need to make when you are operating in a market like Pittsburgh. And uh, we love our market and embrace the challenge that comes with building a winner in one of the smaller markets in Major League Baseball. You once said you'd love to see Andrew McCutcheon wear a Pirates uniform for his entire career. Obviously, that's not going to happen now. How difficult is it to trade your franchise player away? Very difficult. and. Uh, predictably, the fans have um, let us know that they love Andrew like we did, Luke we do, uh, and let us know that they're not thrilled that Andrew was traded. Um, these are the type of tough decisions that you need to make if your sole focus is building a championship team. Uh, as hard as that is for uh, fans to understand, because they love the player, and there are so many terrific reasons why you love Andrew McCutcheon. As a player, he will go down as one of the most iconic and one of the greatest offensive players that the Pittsburgh Pirates have ever had. We have a long history of great players in this organization, and many said when Bonds left as a free agent after six years that there would never be another Pirates player who would ever be in the conversation as one of the top ten players of the franchise history because nobody would be able to stay long enough. We were able to keep Andrew McCutcheon in Pittsburgh for nine seasons. Um, I really embrace what he did here and love the fact that 
uh, he was able to stay here for nine years. And that's a testament to Andrew believing in what we were building in Pittsburgh, signing a multi-year contract, committing himself to the organization, <clears throat> as opposed to lamenting the fact that it can't last forever. But free agency in Major League Baseball has been around since 1976, and there are very few players who stay their entire careers with one organization. That's just a fact of life. And for the Pittsburgh Pirates, as we went into the offseason between 2017 and 2018, we were faced with the following. We had, for two years in a row, not succeeded. 78 wins, 75 wins. That's not good enough for our fans. We have committed to building a World Series championship team for our fans, and that requires management to make unpopular, for the right reasons, uh, but difficult decisions to move veteran players and get younger and to bring in multiple young players to push us to that World Series championship. Very difficult decision and one in which we knew the fans were not going to uh, like and for all the right reasons. Again, Andrew, great player. And what where I was going next was uh, somebody who really embraced Pittsburgh, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the people, married his wife, who's from Western Pennsylvania, settled in Pittsburgh, uh, was terrific in the community. So for all of those reasons, it's a very difficult decision. But it, to me, it tells, um, I, I argue to the fans, this will show you how much we want to build a winner for you, that we would take the um, slings and arrows that have come our way from making this decision because 75, 78 wins is not good enough for the Pittsburgh Pirates fans. You mentioned McCutcheon being here for nine years. We were able to extend him before he reached free agency. How important is it for smaller market teams to take some of those risks, to be a little more aggressive in terms of trying to get their, their stars locked up to longer-term deals either before they hit arbitration years or before they hit free agency? Because as we've seen, once guys hit free agency, usually it goes to the highest bidder. And if you're a smaller market team, you may not necessarily be that highest bidder. Critical part of, it is a critical part of our model, and that is we have to be successful by out-scouting and out-developing other teams, building a strong core of players from within, both from our domestic side, our international side, and then keeping those players here for as long as we possibly can. And you do need in, in my judgment, as a team in a market like Pittsburgh, you do need to take some risk on players and attempt to identify those that are part of your core and try to lock those players up for as long as you can. Um, sometimes you identify the right players and the contract works well for the club. Hopefully it also works well for the player because it provides that type of security and lets the player just go out and play. And we've seen many examples where that has been extremely helpful for a player not to have to worry about his salary arbitration numbers, not having to worry about um, contract negotiations, just go out and play. Uh, other times, uh, we haven't identified the player. We've made a bet that hasn't been nearly as successful. So there's a risk for both sides on, the, on that equation. It's not, the, not every player reaches a conclusion that this is the right decision for him. Uh, we've been successful here with Andrew, uh, Starling Marte, Gregory Polanco, Josh Harrison, of locking up players that have been part of our core uh, for 
a year or two or three of their free agency. You said not every one of them works out, but not everything works out in free agency either, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of GMs who will tell you about all the free agents who they signed to big contracts that, uh, you know, regrettably did not work out for them. So there's no, there's no sure thing. No matter what you, no matter which way you approach it, you're taking a risk no matter what. No question. Both sides of the equation, both the player and the club are taking a risk. And sometimes the you know, player outperforms the contract. Um, other times the player quote-unquote underperforms the contract but these are guaranteed contracts and particularly as you move into the free agent years whether it's in a contract that's signed during a pre-arbitration or arbitration eligible players career as you move towards the later years of their arbitration eligibility and free agent years they become very expensive in the free agent market Obviously, the, the numbers uh, become very expensive, and one or two of those deals that doesn't go well for the club can be crippling. I've read that you prefer to use the word retool to rebuild. Whatever word you use, is it tough to go through those necessary steps when you talk about trading McCutcheon, trading Garrett Cole, when you know, you know the fan base is going to react negatively to it? Yes, it was difficult, and it was a decision to move those two players, McCutcheon in particular, given what he has meant to this organization um, in particular. We had long and difficult conversations and the baseball operations team, which I respect and which has earned credibility with me, maybe not with everybody, but with me, Neil Huntington and his team has earned credibility and respect because they have done something that is very difficult to do. They have won with a team that has not had the resources as much as other teams, and that's on me. My, my, my primary job is to generate the resources to give Neil an opportunity to compete with um, the big boys in the league. And we, we've improved in that area, and as I said, our local revenue has gone up as our revenue sharing has gone down but we're still not among the big boys yet, and that's on me. But notwithstanding, not having some of the resources under our economic system uh, that other teams have, uh, Neil Huntington built a winner. And not by mistake, do you, you, you don't do it by mistake or by happenstance when you win three years in a row. Uh, so he's got credibility. They came and said that we believe that the way that we need to push ourselves in a position to win a championship is to start making some moves. We need to move in a aggressive new direction this offseason, and that requires us to move players who are approaching free agency and securing multiple young, talented players in return. And we, we need to move in that direction because 75 wins is not enough. And we supported that decision. It came from baseball. Um, I got on board, even though it was difficult to uh, move an Andrew McCutcheon, uh, and Bob Nutting ultimately got on board, although he was the most difficult one to get on board because he understood that um, what Andrew McCutcheon meant to the Pittsburgh Pirates and to our fans. The phrase trust the process has become sort of a mantra in sports. Being from Philadelphia, you surely know about it. Uh, is it important to do just that now more than maybe ever before, to just trust the process, stick with your plan, no matter how bleak it may look in the short term? For us internally, uh, we 
understand how we need to build a winning organization. And we do trust the people and the processes that we've put into place. Having said that, we've certainly moved in some new directions in some areas that uh, if, if things are not being successful, if, if we're not successful in certain areas, we need to honestly self-evaluate and decide whether we need to move in a new direction. So, for instance, in our international scouting operations, we were not as successful as we needed to be. As you look at the league, we need to be better than the rest of the league in our scouting and development, and that means domestically and internationally. And internationally, we were falling behind. If you look at the last five years or so, of every team's top 20 prospects, whether you're using MLB.com or Major League uh, or Baseball America. There's anywhere besides MLB.com? Uh, probably not. <laughs> yeah, let's stop right there. Uh, um, we didn't have nearly as many of our top 20 prospects coming out of our international program as uh, some of the other more successful clubs in that area. Uh, we need to be better there. We've made a change in that area. So we do trust the process. Now, getting the fans to trust the process is more difficult. And you use the Sixers example, um, while they can, Hinkle continued to say trust the process as they were losing year in and year out, it was difficult for the fans to really provide that trust in the process. So I've learned the hard way that I can't convince our fans to think one way or another. They're going to have their own conclusions and reach their own judgments. Um, I think we've made some progress in building some trust and credibility over the years of having some success here. Uh, this offseason has challenged that trust and credibility with some. I think uh, some fans have, uh, we need to rebuild that trust with them and we're going to work hard every single day to rebuild the trust and credibility with every one of our fans uh, because they're all critical to us. As I said, we couldn't have done what we were able to do in 13, 14, or 15 without unbelievable fan support, and we can't be as good as we can be if we don't have the support of the, the, the community of Pittsburgh behind the Pirates. Last one for you. Aside from bringing a World Series title back to Pittsburgh, do you have other career aspirations? Much like when I was at the commissioner's office and not looking for opportunities elsewhere, I really tend to focus on the now. And so my focus on the now is the Pittsburgh Pirates and getting us back to a position where we can compete for a World Series championship and finally bringing that sixth World Series championship back to town. Our fans have been through a lot. They deserve it. And uh, they deserve me to be thinking nothing about nothing other than getting that next World Series championship and, and making sure that in all aspects of our organization, the Pirates are an organization that Pittsburghers can be proud of. Pirates President Frank Coonley, appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. My pleasure, Mark. Many thanks to Frank Coonley for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll sit down with Angels Assistant General Manager Jonathan Strangio. We'll discuss his college career at Harvard, his start with the Mets, his path working his way up the Angels front office, and what it's like watching Mike Trout on a daily basis. If you missed our recent special oral history on the Justin Verlander trade, I highly recommend you check it out. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. 
And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.